Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Larry Robinson, the CTO at Clear Capital, and we discuss the lessons learned from being a lifelong entrepreneur, the innovation that they're bringing to the real estate valuation process, and the concept of run, grow, transform. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. It's Larry. Joel, how are you? Look at that Fantastic beard. friend. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> I don't have the beard, but I have crazy long hair right now. Um, I know. And I'm, uh, I'm running around my house trying to avoid my, uh, my wife and my two oldest girls who are desperately <laughs> wanting to, to cut it. So I've, I've built a fort in the upper corner of my home where I can see them coming and fend them off. <laughs> I love it. I got a text from one of my friends the other day and he said, uh, like emergency extraction services, $1,000 will come to your house, dress as COVID rescue team and take you from your wife for a 14 day fishing trip. <laughs> I uh, love like, it. <laughs> yeah. Like that's $1,200 well spent. Get me out of here. Yeah, exactly. So no, these are, uh, these are really challenging times. Um, out of curiosity, you know, I was kind of um, trying to figure out how many of your podcasts you've done since we've kind of been in this uh, shelter-in-place posture. And from what I can figure, it's at least from podcast 162 forward. Is that kind of right? They don't all air in order. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, which is confusing. It's like when I do my talks in public, people come up to me, and the most frequent question I get is, how old are your kids? Because on some of them, I'm like, oh, I've got a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And sometimes it's like they're out of order. So people don't know how old the kids actually are. And I'm like, I love it. I love that people get to listen and they get to feel a part of it. And it's like, it's a lot of fun for me. Yeah. But uh, a couple of them were really interesting. I know that Ken, uh, the CTO of Ford, that episode aired. Uh, and then we did a couple with some people that I've got some close personal relationships with, like uh, Brad Sosa and Mike Contelium. Mm -hmm. They're both uh, just personal friends that I've connected with from the show and have gone out and visited and they ended up becoming customers of our leadership product too. So basically when this was happening, I just started connecting with a few people that I, that I knew really well. I said, Hey, can you come on the podcast like tomorrow? Because we want to get the best insight for people right. to help them. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff, you know, cause one of my, uh, you know, as I was trying, I just assumed, you know, numeric order was date order. You know, one of my, uh, one of my, you know, I guess burning curiosities was um, what, what, so how many podcasts have you done since shelter in place? I'm curious, like what type of trend you're starting to see um, yeah. or, or what's bubbling up as you're talking to more and more people. So I do between just, I'll give you a little background too. And this is fun. It's like behind the scenes. So I do about, I would say four to 500 meetings a year. Uh, since 2017. Of that, I would say we've done three, 300 plus podcasts. And of that, we've aired 160 or 170. Um, that's because it's like a business and it costs us money and we have producers and like we have to pick the episodes. And so that just creates a natural supply and demand issue, which is how we drive uh, revenue so that we can all do this, right? So some people pay for their podcast to be produced or scheduled in a certain time. Uh, so that's background of the business. But for since, since the COVID stuff, I don't know, Jake, you could chime in. I think we've probably done five or six, but I've also done lots of calls. So I do lot, I do these things called micro strategy calls and they're 15 minute calls with other CTOs for me to get a pulse on what's going on. And we also have our email list. And the trend that we've seen is uh, well expressed in the episodes that have aired on COVID. So we, we like to you know, edit the content to, like if I notice a trend uh, of, across 20 conversations I have with just individual CTOs, not everybody wants to be on the podcast, some people are shy, things like that. I will then ask questions and talk with the guest and bring up those topics so that it brings the most amount of value to the listeners. So some trends being uh, the CTOs were well positioned to handle the remote transition. That was probably the biggest one. They're getting a lot of 
their sales leader saying, hey, can you come help us be remote? Uh, and the larger companies, those that did not have a remote culture in place and had VPN issues and ordering laptop issues and you can only do things on company property, so we're going to have to order you. They didn't have like that startup-y feel. Those companies uh, got impacted the most and I heard a lot about that through CTOs who had customers who were those people and those people typically wouldn't have time to come on the show because they're, we're dealing with that fallout. Uh, so, but that was a small percentage. I'd say the, the biggest thing was that the CTOs were helping other parts of the business learn how to go remote. Um, and then of, of course, uh, you know, the part nobody wants to talk about is the financial constraint. That's the hardest thing to get people to talk about. Uh, obviously we're experiencing it because we're a startup, uh, but it's a tough thing to talk about. And uh, when people do talk about it, the people listening can all resonate with it because they're experiencing it. And that's how we connect as people, right? Yeah, without a doubt. It's, uh, you know, it's funny, you talk about, um, you know, does your company have a remote culture or, you know, your sort of business continuity disaster recovery plans? You know, th this is sort of, created a unprecedented opportunity to test them. And, you know, a lot of the things that, that, uh, you know, we were fortunate, we were able to get all 650 of our staff remote in 72 hours, you know, once our CEO and chief people officer made the decision, yeah, you know, let's do this. But uh, it's funny you brought up the laptop thing because a lot of people, you know, didn't necessarily have the hardware at their house to be able to do their job. And, uh, you know, like most big companies, you have your supply chains, you know, that you typically buy through. And we didn't know how disrupted those were going to be. And so my director of uh, IT, you know, said, okay, should, you know, how many laptops should I order? And uh, here's our suppliers. And, you know, my fear was, yeah, you're going through your normal channels. You, you think you're going to click the mouse and, and these laptops are going to show up like they normally do. And so we figured out the configurations that we needed for laptops and monitors. And I dispatched my teams to all the local Best Buys with the idea that possession is nine tenths of the law. I'm like, just because you ordered it from Dell doesn't mean it's going to show up in a week. And we went out and physically laid our hands on the equipment and brought them back to our offices and had them stockpiled. And that turned out to be a, uh, a very smart move is as you know there was you know runs on laptops and toilet paper and, and kind of everything else so yeah supply chains getting disrupted big issue if you have one circuit that comes from a country that you need to complete the laptop then you are not exporting laptops oh you can't get that yeah. piece without a doubt and as so much of america has learned you know our, our supply chains are global and, you know, you get this disruption and, you know, to your point, you, you might have 90% of what you need for the laptop sitting, waiting to be manufactured in Austin, Texas, but you got that one part, you know, that that's stuck in Shanghai or whatnot, and the whole thing cannot come together. So, um, yeah, we've had a, you know, a bit of luck and a bit of experience and a lot of preparation that, you know, fortunately uh, allowed us to make the transition fairly seamlessly. I was, I was checking out your uh, LinkedIn page. I was particularly interested in you because I got my start in software and in, in the real estate industry, my professional start right, uh, in the real estate space. And so I was excited to see what you guys did. But then I, uh, on your page, I saw, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but his name's Kenan. Uh, he did the Space and Time song. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, I did a little digging into your background you know, to, uh, you know, to learn a little bit more about you and, you know, learning that you first got excited about technology at 10 and then you were in a wheelchair for a year at the age of 12. Is, is that what you said? Yeah. The whole process was like almost, almost two years. So I, I got hit by a car, I was in the wheelchair and then, uh, halfway through I slipped and fell and then I rebroke my, one of my legs. And so I, that, made me go back through the rehab process. So it took like twice as long. Um, wow. Fun fact that I never told on the podcast, because why don't we do that today? Uh, the way I slipped and fell was my sisters thought it'd be funny because I was, you know, hobbling around uh, to put uh, shampoo on the tile floor. 
(laughs) (laughs) Because we were 12 and that's what you do. And that's what sisters do, I guess. And they thought I would just slip, you know, a 12 year old's not contemplating the nature of the, this long-term pain or whatever. There's like, it'd be funny to see Joel slip. So that, that was how I slipped and fell, which extended it. But uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. That's uh, well, I have a twin sister, so I can tell you sisters are cruel. Um, and I, th- <laughs> yeah. I think she pretty much owned me until I was about 14 and I started to grow. And at one point in time when uh, she approached me for what I'll just call my daily beating, um, I was big enough to say, okay, we're done with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I love her. I love her to death. But uh, having a having a sister will sharpen you for life. <laughs> Oh yeah, siblings—they they do great things. Speaking of, I have a I have an older brother who's who's three years older than me. A great human being, doctor and everything. But when we were kids, we were kids, and uh, his you know he would bring his friends over and we would rough house or whatever, and it would always be pick on you know the little brother. Well, when high school came around, uh, middle school, high school came around, I had, I just had a massive growth spurt and I became his little big brother. And that's when I stopped getting pushed around so much. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's funny because you're, although we're um, in very different life stages, it sounds like our our, our journey around um, technology and learning to code. Coincidentally, I learned to code mostly around the age of 12 or 13 also. So, you know, finding that to be an interesting parallel, again, I'm, I'm sure we're probably separated by 20 or 25 years, but it was a, it was a fun time to pick up the computer and, and see what you could do with it. What was the environment like? Like how did, how did that come as an option to you? Oh yeah, this is like weird. The old timer stories. Um, my very first computer was a TRS-80 from uh, Tandy Corp and Tandy didn't know what to do with those at the time. So they dropped some off at our junior high and they gave them to all us math kids. Right. And they said, yeah, we don't really know what these are. We don't really know what you can do with them, but check it out. It's like a calculator with a keyboard. Um, and uh, so it was very much a, a hacker culture. You know, was, we had very, you know, we had no, you know, our first, the, the manuals that came with that were, you know, Tandy basic color, basic, you were learning the the very basics of logic and and you had almost no memory to work with you had no storage and and so since you couldn't do much we just sort of hacked um hacked away and then we got our very first modem which connected us to the outside world and before you know it we're phone freaking and breaking into things and and uh, the school quickly put a stop to that um but it was very much a journey of exploration you know, like it's almost like someone handing you a hammer and you're going, hmm, what can I do with this thing now? Um, and, you know, from, you know, hacking turned into writing games. And and for me, um, after writing games, I, I tried to build my favorite arcade game, Defender, um, uh, using a TRS-80 computer. And then from there... Um, you know, became very interested even at the, at a very young age, 14 of like, Hey, is there any practical application that you can do with this? And as fate would have it, um, uh, my parents uh, had uh, uh, ownership in an insurance agency, a farmer's insurance agency at the time. And, you know, back then insurance premiums were big, thick manuals and calculators and, and being, uh, um, good at math, you know, I started looking at these manuals and I could quickly see that that these manuals and all these rates were actually just factorials that they're, you, I could reverse engineer back down to like a base rate and then see all the factorials that led to all these different rates. And I knew, wow, um, there's no way you could put this entire manual and its contents into a computer program, but you can, you know, especially with limited memory. But uh, a base rate and a factorial, ah, that's a nice compact storage scheme right there. And ended up writing a program that uh, made it very, very easy for insurance agents to uh, ask a potential insured a series of questions, and boom, there was your base rate. So something that used to take them an hour, I was able to turn into five minutes um, and thought it was pretty cool. And uh uh, all the agents in the insurance agency started using um, these computers to calculate rates when they were calling people on the phone. And, uh, and then Farmers Insurance came along and offered to license it to me. And at the age of 14, found myself a software entrepreneur. 
Oh, wow. Yes, you had financial success like way early. That is awesome. Well, well let's just say financial accident way early. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, trust me, I didn't do all that saying, oh, and I'm going to be able to sell this for, um, yeah, it's just, you know, like, like really the story of almost every company in America or any entrepreneur, it, it starts with an accident, you know, that, that, that thing that happens that you didn't really expect. And from there forward, now it's your game. Um, what do you do with that accident, that, that accidental collision? Um, and, and that makes for an interesting journey, especially, uh, you know, when I, uh, I starting at 14 and I'm 54 now, I'm, I'm looking back on four decades of just a crazy journey. So did you notice like when you started to hit your early to mid thirties, like a different mental maturity taking place? Uh, yes. Although I think for me, um, you know, becoming a, a CEO at the age of 18, a lot of things happened faster for me. And I think that was a combination of uh, you're forced to kind of grow up quickly and, you know, having the good fortune, uh, you know, my, my first company, we ended up automating 82 of the top 500 insurance carriers in the United States. And uh, at a young age that put me in close proximity to, you know, very senior leadership in an industry that is typically about continuity, right? If you think about insurance companies, you know, they've been around almost since, you know, the beginning of our country, right? Because they're essential for commerce, right? So they, they tend to be based in port cities or along rivers and, you know, railroad, railroad lines, et cetera, et cetera. But they're all about continuity, right? In insurance companies, 200 years old, 300 years old, 400 years old. And so these CEOs taught me, um, a leadership style of permanence, you know, and how you react in the short term, but you plan for the long term. And I mean, think about that wisdom and maturity. You might not get that until late into your thirties or into your forties. And I just had it, you know, driven uh, into me by these CEOs, you know, pre 25. And so that, that saved me a lot of, uh, a lot of years of, of, of recognizing that. But, you know, to your point, things happen in your life that, that turn that for you automatically, you know, the, the birth of your children, um, no doubt started to make your life more about theirs and less about yours. And, uh, boy, uh, if you take you know, that paradigm right there, and then you start to apply it to your company and your leadership, where you start to realize that what you're doing is more about for everyone else than yourself. Um, that's where you, uh, a very important bit starts to flip and how you <laughs> operate and how you think about life um, starts to, starts to get very different. I, I completely 100% agree. I didn't realize what having kids would, I mean, you hear it. And I, I found that this is, have you, have you ever noticed that like you can say a sentence or you can understand a concept through like hearing it being repeated throughout society but then as you gain real experience with that phrase or that concept it just becomes more real like for me in programming it was like everything's an object and that just meant different things throughout my programming career well the same thing is is true i'm finding for all of these management and leadership topics too like i just am constantly finding them renewed with deeper meaning and like especially as i'm having these kids and i see you, having a kid is like it gives you the obviously it's incredibly difficult, but it gives you the gift to see like a, 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 an AI human booting up. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's like, you don't get to look at the boot process ever, the boot sequence. It's like, it's like using a computer and never understanding the boot sequence. Like you get to watch it and then you, you start to extract these like timeless truths of how humans operate and behavior and these like core underlying things that they're not even conscious, these kids, right? Like it, it, on a certain level, they're just, they're just reacting to the environment and the, and, and the environment that you've provided for them. And it's just, it's, uh, it's beautiful and difficult. Like I think life gets more beautiful and more difficult and it's like this weird balance, but, uh, I've also enjoying it. I'll, uh, it, it's, I love how you say this mini AI 
machine booting up. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but wait until it gets faster and smarter than you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so oh. we, we can use that analogy for, uh, you know, the future of AI too. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's amazing. You know, you also, you know, you, you dealt with the death of your mother at 29, you know, which is, uh, which is pretty, pretty young. But, um, you know, the birth of your children or the loss of a loved one, you know, I, I lost two business partners uh, in a, in a one year span, one to cancer and another to suicide. And that, I mean, boy, you want to talk about, you know, further shaping, you know, your view of the world and how you can contribute and what it really means to be human and part of humanity. So both life and loss really, really shapes the way you think about being a leader and what's your purpose. It, I 100% agree. And it took me a long time like to be able to talk about this stuff publicly without choking up because you, you know, there's like what the world sees when you talk about it. And then there's what you feel inside when you talk about it. But yeah, that, that whole process, like it, it's very real, like holding your parents hand as they pass away in front of you with your siblings around you. And, and you don't understand the gravity of it until you experience it. And I would say that between me, my brother and my sister, it had the most profound impact probably on me. Because for some reason, it just was this wake up call that, you know, as much as I was, you know, from the outside, people would say I had done a lot at 29. But on the inside, I knew I was only operating at 10%, 25%. Like I was cruising through because I had, you know, I, I don't know, it just was easy for me. And then I realized, what could I do if I did put it all out there? And it's amazing what I, how much I've surprised myself with how much I could actually output uh, doing the books and the charity and things like that. And, and then I realized, wow, like I can, I can be happier if I push myself a certain amount. And I also pushed myself over. I pushed myself to 110%. And I realized that that's not sustainable long-term. Uh, you start compromising things like your health because you're you know, not eating right because you're overworking and like there were there's definitely something to be said for pushing yourself to the edge and then backing off a little bit to where you're not like completely comfortable but you're just uncomfortable enough to be proud of yourself <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that's an interesting thing yeah there's an underlying um uh probably lesson in all of that too you know when you you, you talk about you know you you're like all right you know there's more than i can be doing i can be more impactful and and you found a mechanism to do it. But, but first and foremost, what you probably had to do was face down a bunch of fear about doing it. Um, and once you sort of drive through that fear and say, for whatever reasons, you know, whatever the catalyst was, you, you know, the age that you were in your life, you know, your children, the loss of your mother, you know, contemplating what to do, something gave you that courage to say, okay, I'm going to do this new thing now. And you broke through that wall and and what you've likely discovered, like so many other people, is it wasn't near as scary as you thought it was going to be. And then you come to find out that what holds most of us back, whether it's individuals or companies, is that fear of pushing for that next thing. Um, because it's so easy to get this mentality of, I want to protect what I have. I've got this land. I'm going to defend it. And if I go and take this new land, you know, what happens? And uh, when you're fortunate enough to push through it, like you described, it's so enlightening when you get on the other side. I, I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to finances. So, you know, we're obviously in this pullback mode of the economy. And I've been asking myself a lot lately, like, I want, you know, I listen to a lot of the speeches. I study a lot of the successful people and they're always saying, you know, push forward, especially in these downturns. And, and then, but there's gotta be more context than that. Right. It's, it's gotta be understanding. Like they're obviously giving this advice at times when they have, you know, millions of dollars. Right. And it's like, how much runway do I have and how, and, and what's enough runway to make this decision? Cause yeah, as of today, I think there's like 26 million unemployed Americans right? There's a lot of great people to hire, but you can't just go out and you can't, I, I guess my, my favorite advice 
that I've heard from Bezos was um, don't make bet the company bets. He's like, you know, make strategic decisions, try things, be bold. You know, when I go and speak at some of these companies, like very large companies uh, with executives all over the world, I'll speak at like their conferences or their annual meetings where they'll have all the divisional, you know, CTOs, like 50 CTOs that are running different parts of the world. And the, the number one topic, do you know what the number one request of a topic I get? What is it? How, how to be, how to be bold, how to take chances. Because yeah. these these boards and these groups of people, uh, they can't get these executives that are making lots of money to take big risk. And that's what they want me to talk about because they see me, they'll read my you know book or they'll watch my history and they see like, I'll constantly take a risk. And the reason why is because at the end we die. I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of this, we die and I can, I can make more money by having more experience. But the only way I can get experience is like meaningful growth experience is through taking some risk. Some people take enough risk to show up on time at their job. Some people take risk to absolutely crush it and take it to the next level and go off and change the world. And we all, we all see risk differently. And it's, uh, it's really, it's really interesting. I, I think and I love this conversation with you, by the way. I'm like really engaged with this. Uh, awesome. I think this act of this progression of this evolution of myself is, is something that I find an amazing aspect of existence and humanity because it's like this, 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 you can't game it and routine it because then you stop the growth. And if you stop the growth, everything stalls and then there's no point in existing. So you kind of like, you have to keep going. Like life is designed that way. It's really interesting. The, uh, you know, it's funny. You said the number one request is, uh, you know, how can I teach my executives to be bold? You know, Christensen spoke into this and innovators dilemma, you know, at, at great length on, on, and again, this is sort of the protect what you have how do you want to make your executives bold? You have to incentivize them to not maintain the status quo. And this gets different for each company. I mean, Bezos is very correct. You know, I can't make bet the company uh, type gambles. So if you, you kind of look at the, it's a bit long in the tooth, but it's still useful sort of McKinsey's run, grow, transform. Um, You know, a startup like yourself you need to be making more transformative bets, right? Those, those, you know, transform is, are these things that like, if this bet pays off, there'll be big winners and big losers, you know, sort of the classic, you know, Negroponte switch, if you will. And then you got to do other things, you know, to, to grow your business and other things just to keep the lights on and run it. And those, are, those percentages change, you know, depending on the market you're in and what stage you're in. So, it, so a startup, you know, they're, 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 energy and spend around transformative bets might be 50%. Um, But as they mature, you know, those will turn into 30%. And, you know, a company like Bezos, you know, Amazon probably settles in it. And I I don't know much about it, but I'll just pull it off the top of my head. You know, eight to 10% of their spend is now transformative. And they're probably spending another you know, 10 to 15% on grow your business initiatives. And, and at their size, you know, probably, you know, 70 to 75% of their spend is just around running. Um, But at these times that you want to change your company, you have to look at that kind of RGT equation and say, okay, um, are we in an era where we need to now double down and be transformative? And at, and at Clear Capital, you know, this is just pure happenstance. You and I are talking about this. The executive team and our CEO literally had a meeting yesterday where we, and, and we have a meeting tomorrow where we said, okay, in these times of COVID that are upending our industry, and, and we're in the real estate valuation industry, what would be the three or four big bets that we're prepared to make? And it was so cool, Joel, to be on an executive team that instead of hunkering down and saying, oh my gosh, what are we going to do, you know, has the courage to say, come back to the table with the big bets that we should be prepared to make right now that will will reposition us on the other side of this, whether we're, you know, whether life returns to normal or we're just on a new trajectory after COVID, what would that look like? And that culture in a company 
is important. Otherwise, um, we all fade. You know, when I was in college, one of the most impactful, and, and my degree is in economics, by the way, not, not technology. Um, one of the most impactful things that a professor said and showed me was a, a chart of Fortune 500 companies from like 1970. And then uh, a chart 15 years later of the Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, you think when a Fortune 500 company gets to a certain size, they make their own gravity, right? Um, they, they can overcome their mistakes. They can absorb them. Uh, and it was really illuminating how many companies had dropped off that Fortune 500 list in, in just a decade, like 15%. And you carry that out over 20 years, 30 years. And what you find is that 40, 50% of those Fortune 500 companies, they're just not here anymore. So size and make your own gravity is no more of a guarantee than anything else. Um, you, you must constantly um, ask yourself, what got us here? Will it get us there? Um, and adapting and innovating, not just in technology, but in, in, all, port, in all parts of your sort of people, process, product, um, you, you have to just constantly push. I 100% agree. And I did have a couple questions. So RGT is uh, acronym for Run, Growth, Transform, right? Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned uh, some type of switch, a word that started with an N. Negroponte. Oh, the, the, the Negroponte switch. What is yeah. That? So John Negroponte, who um, I can't remember which chair he held at MIT, um, he he talked about um, a Negroponte switch that come. Well, he talked about it, and it was named after him. That things come along that so upend uh, a particular industry that sort of people that are on the top and people are at the bottom. When the switch occurs, things can just entirely flip around. So at my age, you know, sort of the very first Negroponte switch that, that was talked about to me was um, what happened with uh, Macaw Cellular and AT&T. So the switch there was our phone lines used to be in the ground, right? And TV signals used to be in the air, right? We would broadcast things through satellite, right? So phone lines in the ground, satellite in the air. Where are we at today? phone lines are in the air, everything is cell, and TV is all cable, which is buried in the ground. So those two things switched, they traded places, and when they did, massive fortunes were won and lost. And so on almost any industry, you can follow through and you'll find these Negroponte, you know, switches that occur. In, in society, we would call them, you know, schisms that occur. You know, you look at, you know, um, the Mongol Empire and how they expanded across China into Eastern Europe and then what caused their demise and what caused the rise of the Ottoman Empire and then the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And almost all of these things can be traced back to these switches that occur that just totally rewrite the rules of a society or an industry. And are you looking for them? Can you sense them coming and can you react to them? So, whoa, you just blew my mind. Okay, so hold on a second. Let's back this up. You've got a degree in economics. Can you identify these switches by some sort of economic indicators? You know, it, so this, it's funny. Earlier, you're talking about books, you know, and, and reading and having knowledge. But then, you know, experience shapes your knowledge, right? You know, a funny thing that I do with books is, uh, you know, probably like you, I, I read a lot of stuff. Uh, and I discard a lot of stuff, but I hold on to, you know, some gems. And uh, what I do is I'll, I'll take these books and I'll kind of mark with like, um, you know, yellow tabs, good ideas throughout the book. And when I'm all done, um, I'll challenge myself to go through the yellow tabs and switch one of them to red. And the red tab is always the central idea, like the best idea in the book to me. And I'll put them on my shelf. Um, and very few stay on my shelf. Um, uh, well, I should say very few even make my shelf. Um, I, most books, I, like I said, I just read and discard. The funnest thing in the world to do, and, and unfortunately this takes time, is go back and visit those books five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, now that you have some experience. And number one, um, you don't reread the whole thing. You go after the, you know, the yellow tabs and say, whoa, is this information still relevant? And 
the thing that I thought was the single most important thing in this book, you know, the red tab, is it still the red tab? Or are one of these other things now the most important thing? And that journey, which again, you know, takes time, becomes um, super illuminating on what it is that we knew at one time. Is it practical in another time? So how does this all, you know, play into um, your sort of classic ability to sense and seize opportunity, which was a, a saying of Jack Welsh at GE. Um, you just need cycles, right? Cycles underneath your belt, cycles in your team to be able to see those things and say, ah, this looks like an opportunity. That's what our company is seeing with, with this COVID crisis as the business of real estate. And, you know, and again, clear, clear capital is, we're a valuations company. And what that means is, you know, as soon as you buy a home, Joel, whether, you know, if you're paying cash, clear capital has nothing to do with you. But if you're going to borrow money from someone else, like most people do, our company works to, you know, tell the lender, the bank and the investor, right? Because banks rarely hold on to loans. They, they move them back into Wall Street or they move them to Fannie uh, Mae or Freddie Mac. We work to tell the bank and the eventual investor whether or not the valuation of this home makes sense. And, uh, you know, we're looking at the business of real estate right now, you know, which if you think about real estate, it's a it's sort of a high engagement relationship driven business that's all focused around a location, right? An address where you presumably have a seller and a buyer and you got a neighborhood and schools and it requires proximity to the property and, and, you know, all the relationships to make it happen. You know, this, uh, this pandemic has caused real estate to start to rethink itself. Now there were fundamental shifts underway already. Um, but, uh, with this pandemic an industry, you know, financial services often changes slowly, uh, because of risk. This pandemic is has forced this industry to sort of rethink and rewire itself in order to keep the stream moving. You know, the continuity. I mean, if there's one thing that we can bank on, it's that we're all sort of moving toward or wired toward home ownership at some point in our life. And every economic cycle, you know, sort of the peaks and the valleys, people are still going to buy homes. They're going to have to sell homes. They're going to buy homes. And, and we are re-looking at how do we keep that water moving through the pipes in an, in an era where people may be hesitant to become, uh, you know, proximate to each other. So that is proximate to each other. So it all yeah. works this. And I love when, <laughs> when I love language because I used to say words that necessarily like didn't exist. And, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and my uncle, a couple times, uh, called me on some stuff and so i got nerdy and i started researching like the whenever some whenever a debate comes up i go right to the origin that's like one of my favorite moves like okay, something's happening let's go to the origin of this and learn something and yeah. I, I happened to do that and i so i started i took this like class on the origins of like philosophy and language and right i found out that the way words become words is through us using them and then making new words like just making the new word and that word catching on is how things enter and exit the dictionaries amen this yes. is i mean the, if you look at the oed you know every year the oxford english dictionary every year like 1200 new words are added and 400 words are taken out for exactly the process that you described. So yeah, I would encourage you to make up a word and just pound it everywhere. And pretty soon you can look at the OED and say, I started that. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, on language, my mother was a, was an English professor. Um, so man, if you don't think my life wasn't just full of constant edits and corrections, it was terrible. So between a sister that beat me up and a mom that corrected me all the time, um, I, I'm, I'm, it's a wonder I'm not a, a, a frail personality. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you just chose to uh, take some personal responsibility and turn that into strength and leverage it. And that's, uh, so I've got burning question here. Sure. The Negro Ponte switch uh, is clear capital in the middle of one of those market switches. Boy, do we ever think so. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. The, uh, 
so uh, when a when a contract is reached on a property, uh, you know the buyer and seller meet on a price and money is going to be borrowed. Um, a an appraisal, you know, a determination of valuation has to be made, and uh, I, I won't bore you with all the complications of what goes into um, you know truly valuing a home. But one of the most important things is what's the condition and quality of this home. Uh, you know, does it have underlying problems? Does it have, you know, things that we call functional, you know, obsolescence? We're just using the home. There's something weird. Um, and in order to do that, uh, you know, typically an appraiser or a home inspector will go on site and physically inventory the home, take a bunch of pictures, you know, answer a bunch, uh, answer a bunch of questions. Well, you can't do that now, right? You have these professional appraisers and inspectors um, they they either cannot because of shelter in place orders or will not go out to a home. On the flip side of that, you know, um, you know, only a small percentage of homes that sell are vacant. Uh, you have a homeowner sitting inside that home that also doesn't want someone coming in from the outside, and and they will be going through every part of the home, right? Every bedroom, every bathroom, opening things up, you know, looking around. So this this intruder, if you will. Uh, is going to be coming in and touching and walking around all parts of your of your home. So, how do you uh, how do you um, give a financial institution confidence that this asset that they're going to loan money on is is in the condition you know that that you know they would expect it to be in? So, we uh, uh, came up with a way to allow a homeowner to do the inspection on their home and do it in a way that gave both the appraiser and the lender the confidence that nothing was sort of being hidden or um, obscured that would stop the appraiser from feeling fairly good about the value. And our, our CEO and executive team decided on March 23rd, okay, we wanna do this, we wanna do it for the industry. We're gonna make it free, you know, which is just unheard of in our industry. And, and basically at noon on March 23rd said, we're gonna build this, make it free, go fast. And in our company, both product and tech uh, roll up into me. So we kicked off the product teams and the tech teams and we were able to launch this service to the industry for free on April 1st, fully compliant. And there's nothing more satisfying you know, than when you turn something on and you just watch the meter running. And one of the cool early stories, you know, that, that came out of that was a, a homeowner who took the time to let us know that she was seven months pregnant and they needed, they, you know, they needed to complete this contract on their home because they were relocating. And she was terrified about having someone come into the home. And we released this inspection app, um, her lender, you know, you just text the link to the homeowner and they can, they can start to do it. Um, she was able to complete this inspection within 30 minutes, get it and unlock the transaction and get it going. And so the bank was happy, you know, that this newly expectant mother was greatly relieved that you know, it's a wonderful story, not a story that we were looking for. Um, you know, we, we knew that we could, um, we could help the industry, but then something like that comes through and like so many things, um, so many product companies or technology companies, you start to realize that this thing that you created impacts way impacts people's in ways that you really didn't imagine. And for me personally, that's always been the big driver in life behind, you know, building all my companies or, or, you know, helping clear capital right now is, is the reward that you get from stories like that told and untold um, that, that just makes so much of it worthwhile. So our, uh, you know, we, we stood up this getownerinsight.com in eight days. It's a, even a lot of people in the industry were like, how'd you stand that up in eight days? And we're like, well, two years of hard work before that, right? Because we were able to build that from, you know, really good technology that we had on the shelf already. I kind of liken it to being a, a chef that already has a pantry of high quality ingredients. And someone says, you know, hey, you know, make me a soup and you're like, no problem. Um, so we did it in eight days, but we did it because we had two years of just really good work in front of that. So I love it. And I'm actually looking at it right now, but it looked, the brand looks good too. And the content, it looks, it's well done. 
Oh, our, our marketing team, our director of marketing, John Lyon, um, just did brilliant work on that. Um, our uh, EVP of corporate strategy, Keenan Chen, uh, just did a great job of positioning this with, with uh, you know, our customers. And that's the crazy thing. It, it's not that the product was stood up or the tech was stood up in eight days. It's that all parts of the organization, right? The, the head of sales, the head of strategy, the marketing directors, the tech teams, the product teams, the CEO, everyone just had to say, do this. But you know, we, we were talking earlier about the boldness to push through and just go for it. You know, our, our CEO just said, I want to do this and said, go make it happen. And then, you know, like all good executives just got out of the way, right? You know, you, you, you build these high functioning teams and you empower them. And the hardest thing to do as a leadership is just take your hands off of them and let them be great. Really the, you know, you're, if I caught it right, you, your children are one and three years old now. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're at the age, you know, they've already started walking. They're going to want to get on the bikes and the skateboards soon. And you sort of want to show them how to do it. And you want to put your arms around them and like, okay, and you can do it. But at some point in time, you just have to step back and say, do it. Let's see what happens. Um, there, there's so many analogies between, you know, being a leader and, and being a good parent. And you realize so quickly that you can't do it for them because you rob them of their opportunity to, to learn. You learn that faster in parenting than you do in managing. Yeah. Because, and managing yeah. when the person's that close to you and intellect, it's not as clear. But when mm -hmm. it's a child, it's so clear when you rob them of the opportunity to learn because they come back to you and ask you to open it every single time. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, yeah. So the, the cool thing, you know, you mentioned you're on our getownerinsight.com. What's really neat about that too, is you'll notice you were able to bring it up and there's no friction. Like, you know, you see, it says, Hey, who's the requester? You know, that's generally the appraiser or the bank. Are you requesting this? And, and okay, who's the homeowner that you want us to send this link to? But I mean, I would encourage you, Joel, take it for a test drive. There, there is no, um, gate between you saying I'm a requester, so I'm going to pretend I'm the bank, and I'm also going to be the homeowner. Put it all in and and do your home, um, and see if when you're all done, you don't feel number one. The I, I think all great tech products help the user feel successful. Um, you know, and and in this case, it the homeowner feels successful. They're able to tell the story of their home. And it's super easy to use and the information flows back into the financial system so we can keep things moving. So yeah, if you have the chance, take it for a test drive, pretend you're both the bank and the homeowner. Um, you'll have fun with it. Yeah. And, and it's actually pretty interesting because I'll show you, you know, the text from my wife this morning, we were actually looking at different uh, properties. There you go. It's at, and we were, we were questioning about this going on right now because we, um, uh, so she got furloughed from her job. So she started mm -hmm. redoing cabinets. Uh, so she redid our cabinets and then she, our neighbors were like, Hey, we want our cabinets. And so she's doing that. And she's made, she made more money and redoing cabinets in the past two weeks. than she does at her job normally. So she's like, I'm going to keep doing this. And I said, well, great, but we'll probably need some more space, you know, for you to read it. Cause we live in a pretty tight area. I was like, why don't we go out to some place that has like an acre of property and uh, maybe we could have some chickens because we, you know, her sister has chickens and we like the eggs that, by the way, the eggs from a chicken, then like if you have a family that has chickens are not even close to the eggs you get from the grocery store. They're like a thousand times better. Well, and not only that, the first, so I've had chickens myself too. So the oh, first okay. thing you notice is the yolks from the stores are pale yellow mm -hmm. and the yolks from your free range chickens are deep orange. Mm-hmm. And that's all the omegas, three sixes and nines that as the chickens walk around and eat all the different foliage. Um, yeah. It, yeah. Chickens are fun. They're uh, not only do you get eggs, you, you find yourself being fiercely protective of them. I, uh, I had some raccoons get into one of my chicken coops one time and uh, that, that led to me being underneath my deck with a shotgun and a 22 determined to rescue these chickens from these raccoons who um, were just totally willing to over, you know, predate and uh, kill them all. So um, you will, uh, if you get that property, 
not only will your wife have a cool workshop, but I encourage you to get your free range chickens. You'll love them. Oh yeah. I'm just trying, at first she was trying to upgrade and I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I was like, we don't need a big upgrade. We need like a slight upgrade. We need to go from being in a, in an HOA that won't allow us. Like we have a backyard now, but our HOA will not allow us to put yeah. chickens out there or anything, which is a whole nother story. But, uh, I was like, let's just do an exchange. Let's just go to a place where we just don't have the HOA and we could do mm. that because, uh, you know, I think that that's becoming a bigger conversation in a lot of families is the the health of their food. Like the food's gotten pretty far out there. Uh, and as I'm seeing the kids grow up and as I notice myself starting to eat from like farmer's markets and getting neighborhood chicken eggs and stuff like that from her, her sister, I noticed that there really is a big difference in the quality of the food. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's noticeable. Like you feel better. It's just better food. Yeah. Hey, a good read for you is Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, and uh, his book that he won the Pulitzer for is called Botany of Desire. Um, but this is, a, this is weird where I would actually say read them out of order. Um, so read Omnivore's Dilemma first and then um, read Botany of Desire. And then I think the book that came after that was called uh, In Search of Food or something like that. But uh, yeah, start with Omnivore's, Omnivore's Dilemma. It will, uh, it's eye-opening. So, so do you have any, any animals on the property now? I have three rat terriers, um, uh, Chuck and Norris. And then, uh, <laughs> and, and then uh, they're both 11. And then we got a, a young female uh, that we named Lucy. Uh, remember after the, uh, was that was Scarlett Johansson, right? In the, oh, remember, yeah. the, the blue chemical that gave her all the superpowers. So, uh, but we're, uh, I, I live on a half acre parcel that is surrounded by a bunch of three acre parcels just outside of Sacramento, California. And uh, we in fact can keep chickens. So as soon as I get done with a few other projects, um, I, the chickens are coming back into our life. So that's awesome. I'm curious. I want to know the story. What's with the, um, the, the cards behind. Oh you? yeah. There's, there's, uh, there's actually two. And, uh, it, that was a winning hand in Vegas uh -huh. and, uh, not a huge amount of money, but, but, uh, um, so I took a picture of the cards, right? Cause you got all these different deck manufacturers. So as I threw down this 21, I actually, I think my wife was behind me. She took a picture of it and she's watching them shove all these chips toward me. And uh, as a memento, she, she had a diorama made. So those pictures are actually in depth and they're made out of like magazine covers and all sorts of cool things. So oh, wow. like that ace of spades is like nine layers deep. You can't see the depth from the camera and same with the, the, the jack and their, the attention to detail, the person that made it, you know, is uh, I, I think for, for, there's a lot of personal representation, you know, being, um, being good as a leader, being good at product, being good at tech is uh, paying attention to details that other people never think about or see. Um, and so I, I like having, um, I like owning things where you can see that someone really cared and had a real passion for what they created. Um, so yeah, that, that's, uh, they're, they just look like pictures, but there's actually a huge story behind them and they're pretty neat. So I guess I should ask you like, uh, the purple pony, uh, <laughs> the purple, that's the unicorn. Oh, it's a unicorn. It's a unicorn. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we were at the store shopping for these little trinkets for the wall uh -huh. and, uh, Aria wanted the, the unicorn. And I said, okay, that'd be cool. We will have that for, uh, for, um, you know, memory of, of, of that so remember the kids i got a couple little things i got this is an elephant for the because there's always an elephant in the room okay yeah oh uh, dude look at you have your finger like perfectly oh, pointing yeah. to it. like have you done this before i've like, done this a couple times yeah yeah you're so very good at it i'll do some show and tell so we got elephant i'll give you a behind the scenes story of this a special special episode apparently today so i'm on a date with this girl who's not my wife like before my wife <laughs> just to be clear on the timeline there and uh, a single, single bachelor just built a house, no decorations, because you know you just don't do that when when you're a bachelor. And uh, and so I'm on this date, and 
I was like, I want that elephant. I just became upset. Like, I was like, I'm going to get that elephant. And uh, it ended up being like $600. But like I had committed to it before knowing the price. I was like, I thought it was going to be right. like 20 bucks, but I'm on this first date. And so I have to buy it. <laughs> so I have to buy it. And for me, just to give some context, that was like my decorating budget for the entire house. I was like, I'll spend oh, like $600 to decorate the house. And so I put it up there and for like three years, Everyone would come over and be like, dude, did you just move in? I was like, I spent all my decoration money on the elephant. And so he made his way into the office uh, now. And so I got a little elephant. I got uh, get a little guitar because I play guitar. Um, I got a little ampersand because in the uh, language of Ruby, those represent blocks. And I don't mm-hmm. know, I was just kind of a fan. When I found, I used blocks for a long time and didn't know how they actually worked in the programming language. And then I found out how they actually worked. And I was like, this is brilliant. And so for some reason, I like the ampersand. And then you have some pictures, got some dogs, some kids, uh, children's books from the charity, and uh, some like Iron Man, and it's a little Alley from, um, oh, one of that companies that has the owl as the mascot. I can't remember right now. But yeah, I got, I got, and we do, you should come when the social distancing is over. We've got the, uh, the chairs here for the in-person interviews when people come to the office. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so this is cool. You you have a wall behind you now that for all of your people that, that tune in in the future, your story is now well known. So oh, that's true. <laughs> see, this is your narrative now. So Behind the scenes. Yeah. So you said this, we'll just call this a special episode because what, we didn't cover your normal uh, topics? No, you came. I, would, I will give you a special award for being the most well-prepared guests that I've ever had on. I don't think I've ever had anyone ask me so many uh, questions. I loved it. Well, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a, a secret here. So um, most of your, your shows rightfully have a theme um, about, you know, the journey of whoever it is that you're talking to and uh, their leadership styles and, you know, how do you find yourself to be effective, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, maybe I could offer to you that this entire interview that you and I did is my leadership secret. Um, I made this more about you than me. I know. I, I, I was like blown away. I, about like halfway through, I was like, he is doing something amazing. But thank you for pointing that out because now I can point people back to this episode and be like, look at if you want an example of how to do that, uh, look, at, look, at this, look at this episode. And that's the and that's the journey of life, right? As we get as we get older, if we hopefully mature and become, you know, um, you know, fairly introspective, you start to realize that in order to get more of what it is that you want, make sure that the people around you get everything that they want, um, and then you get this wonderful symbiotic loop going. And when you do that, really powerful things happen like a mic drop moment no well i mean (laughs) it's 10 o'clock we could just end right there oh this is great i kind of don't want it to end but i I, where do you live where are you located um so i'm actually in folsom california which is um uh just outside sacramento as you're heading you know toward the sierra nevadas you know the the beautiful mountain range that that divides california and nevada so um, very, very proximate to San Francisco. I've spent a lot of time in the Valley. Um, and, uh, I built my first two companies outside the Valley. Um, although a very prominent law firm, uh, Wilson Sonsini, uh, has been with me since I was uh, 18 years old. Then I spent a fair amount of time in San Francisco, um, working with VCs and helping to mentor their, uh, you know, some of their up and coming CEOs and CTOs. And currently at Clear Capital, you know, the founders of this company, um, Dwayne uh, Andrews and Kevin Marshall, were just on their own incredible journey. And uh, um, uh, they asked me to come on board. And uh, I'm at the point in my life where, you know, having built and sold two companies and, you know, I've been a home builder and a restaurateur, I just get so much uh, more satisfaction out of helping people uh, achieve their dreams and what it is that they want because so many people help me achieve mine. So, um, yeah, really, uh, really good space to be in right now. Oh, dude, this is so good. Okay. So when all the social distancing is over, we're going to hang out for sure. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll, I'll come to Florida. You can come to California.
Oh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, this is just, it was a really meaningful conversation at the right time. And I found that some of the best things in life have that synchronicity with them and they don't happen every day, but sometimes they happen. And I feel like our conversation today was one of them for me. So I really appreciate you coming on and hanging out. Uh, pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Joel. And Jake, I know you're out there. Thank you to you also. Jake, that's a good call, right? Thank you so much, Larry. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.